Welcome to a special edition of Backstage the Enharmonic. This session is the audio portion of a roundtable discussion that I moderated at the NAMM show in 2017. The panel discussion was entitled Knocking Down Walls to Strengthen Your Foundation. An all-star panel explored and discussed reasons that we build mental walls and roadblocks and how to remove them to achieve success, develop professional relationships, and enhance performance and educational opportunities. I'm the session moderator, and I'm a freelance drum set artist, percussionist, author, composer, and educator. The other members of the panel include Mark Ammon, Director of Sales for Casio America and freelance bass player. Clayton Cameron, also known as the Brushmaster. He's a Grammy Award-winning drum set artist and lecturer at UCLA. The final member of the panel is Gordon Goodwin, Grammy Award-winning pianist, saxophonist, composer, arranger, and conductor, and leader of the Big Fat Band. I hope you enjoy this roundtable discussion. There was a quote I had read online. A friend of mine had put this quote up. I'll just read it to you real quick. It says, if you do not change direction, you may end up where you're heading. And uh, as soon as I saw that, I thought about this presentation because when I was a young guy in high school, college and all that, I had a very clear direction of where I was going and who I was. And if my 13-year-old self could talk to my 45-year-old self, they would not recognize each other. Because when I was 13 through 18, 21, I never would have imagined I'd be here doing this. So, I grew up in the 80s, of course, and I had a lot of great teachers. My private teacher uh, worked freelance down in Atlantic City, and he did a lot of freelance teaching. Uh, my band director in high school was a big influence. He played with Lou Rawls and other people like that. And they became my, my first musical heroes, and I really wanted to be them. I wanted to play with top-notch musicians, teach, and uh, have some great stories to tell about my life because it was so exciting, all these stories I was getting from these um, people that... They were experts at what they did, and they also chose to teach. So I kind of wanted to uh, follow that model. And, um, but I started college as a computer science major because they said, music, don't take music, you're crazy, you can't have a career in music. Uh, that's all I heard from guidance counselors, and it was, such a, it was such a bizarre thing because they'd go and they'd say, oh, Kennedy, you're really good at music. You play the drums and the piano really well. This is great. Um, what do you want to do when you're older? I said, be a musician. They're like, no, you shouldn't do that. I'm like, but you all just told me I was great. They're like, yeah, but you shouldn't do that. Do something else. So lo and behold, I followed their advice and I was a computer science major, communications, and it was kind of a disaster because I would go to school and I didn't care about that and all I'd do was play in orchestras and rock bands and everywhere. I was playing in my parents' basement, the garage, everything. And after about a year and a half, two years of college, I said, you know what, this isn't working. And I went to music school and I never looked back. Uh, so that was a kind of a personal fight that I had to get through. Uh, with my family and myself to get to that. And then, uh, college was great. I got an undergrad in music education, and uh, then I went back and I got a master's degree in percussion performance. And I got, right after my master's degree in about 2000, 2001, I got hired to play with this really hot wedding dance band in the Philadelphia area. And I was like, this is it, I've made it. They were doing like two gigs a weekend. I was getting like 600 bucks a weekend. I was teaching also. And I'm like, this is it. I finally reached that plateau in my career. Um, and oddly enough, about three months after getting landing that gig, I got a call and they said, yeah, you're fired. We want another drummer. And I, I remember the moment I was standing in my kitchen. I leaned against the, my oven. I'm like, what? I, I, I think he had to say it four times. He's like, dude, we're going with another drummer. 
and I never got any clear indication why. I didn't know if they didn't like me, if they didn't like my drumming. I had, they're just like, yeah, we're going with another guy. So for about two, three weeks at least, I was just, I was as low as I've ever been in my life because I had just done all this stuff. It was like decades of hard work, got a master's degree in percussion. Um, maybe I was a little too um, pleased with myself. Maybe I deserved that kick in the butt, but, um, you know, I was devastated. And I said, what am I gonna do? And no other band is calling me, I'm not getting gigs. And it was that life, it kind of changed my life, getting kicked out of that band. And looking back now, I think that was the best thing that ever happened in my musical career, was getting kicked out of that wedding band. Because I had to reevaluate how I was gonna be a musician. Especially as a drummer, because we're always in the back. Okay, no one notices a drummer in the back. Um, and all my friends were drummers. Drummers don't really call drummers your gigs. So I had to reevaluate what I was gonna do to become a musician. I was teaching, but I wanted to play also. And I'm like, all right, I have to do something. I have to change what I've done because this isn't working. So um, it was right about that time, early 2000s, that I was getting onto the internet. So I started looking around and I just started Googling things, like bands that are out there. So I'm like, what am I gonna do? Do I wanna just focus on being a big band drummer or do I wanna get out there and play and meet more people? I chose B. So I started sending resumes out, letters, emails, anything I could do to any bands that I saw were gigging around town, any style. And the call came in uh, from this group called the Allentown Band. They're a concert band in the style of the Eastman Wind Ensemble. And they're very good. And this guy emailed me. He said, hey, I got your uh, email. We're doing a recording session in July. Okay, I think I got kicked out of that band in March. So he said, we're doing a recording session in July. We need someone that can read, can play some drum set, can play some mallets and timpani. Would you like to do it? I'm like, sure. That was the first commercial recording I was ever on. Um, so I started working with the Allentown Band, played with them for about two or three years. Lo and behold, the contractor that works for the Allentown Band also contracted the Allentown Symphony Orchestra. They said, oh, you're pretty good at reading xylophone. You want to go over and play? I'm like, yeah. So I started playing in the symphony with those guys. And then, and it was about an hour and a half from my house. So my sphere of musicians that I started to know expanded. And I started to get a name away from um, my zip code where I lived, okay? And again, it was all because I got kicked out of that wedding band, okay? If I had not done that, or if they had not done that to me, I wouldn't have moved on. And the reason I share that story, I share it with a lot of my students too, <coughs> is because a lot of times you're gonna run into potholes and detours and sometimes those are the best things that can happen. And uh, my wife was very supportive and my friends and my family uh, kind of got me through that and made me think about how I was going to be a musician. And um, uh, I've probably spoken too long. Oh no, pretty good. All right, um, so I'm gonna, that's gonna be the end of my portion of this, okay? I'm gonna let these guys go and share their stories and if there's time, you can have some questions at the end. So Mark, why don't you share with us? Well, so kind of interesting. Um, to be grouped with these folks here. I am not a full-time musician. Uh, I am not a schooled musician, I'm self-taught. Um, but I realize that there's things that you can do uh, in the music industry uh, and still kind of have your cake and eat it too. So to borrow a phrase from Jim Carrey when he, he made a speech at a, a graduation, you know, you can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to be, but you have to have the passion for it. So uh, I started playing drums when I was six years old. Um, played left-handed. Everybody told me, oh, you can't play left-handed. And I said, sure I can. So I continued to play drums left-handed. Then I started to play guitar. 
and it was hard finding left-handed guitars. And everybody said, well, you should play right-handed. I'm like, no, I'm gonna play left-handed. So I continued to do that. And then I started playing bass. And when I played bass, it actually took me back to the drums, which was basically my foundation. And I fell in love with playing bass. But the one thing that was missing was I wasn't really that talented, you know, like these folks, frankly, to make a living out of playing music. I still do 90 to 100 gigs a year, which is pretty good. Um, and I get a lot of calls. Uh, but I had a passion for music. And about 18 years ago, I came to an AM show uh, with 300 resumes and, and two really nice suits and stayed in a really crappy hotel. And I uh, walked the floor and tried to get something in the music industry, and I did. I landed something in the music industry. And um, that was kind of a, a, a life-changing event because I realized I could have my cake and eat it too. You know, if you ask for it, you can do it. But the key to it is the passion. You know, we all have passion. And we all have stories that, you know, um, kind of led us to where we, where we are today. But show of hands, how many, like this, how many people <laughs> in the room are musicians? Common thread, right? It's the common thread. We're all musicians, we all have passion. So somebody said to me, you know, you have this full-time gig, you know, you work for Casio America, um, you're pretty busy, I have a crazy commute every day. How are you able to do 90 to 100 gigs a year and still do a full-time job? And I said, well, you make time. Well, when do you practice? I don't watch TV, and I don't. I find the time. I also am lucky enough that occasionally I can work remotely, I can work from home. I get up every day, East Coast time, 4.30 a.m. I get up at 4.30, I'm in the car by 5 a.m., I go to my office, I'm there before 7. I stay till about 4.30 or 5 and I drive home. On the mornings when I work from home, I'll still get up at 4.30, but I'll go down to my studio and I'll practice for an hour. So I play electric and upright bass. Upright bass is probably the most difficult thing I've ever had to, to, to play. It's like playing the trumpet. Once you've played electric bass and you go to upright, it's a whole different animal. But I had the passion and I really worked at it. I actually even auditioned at the local college um, to get my master's degree in jazz studies. I uh, didn't get in, unfortunately, but it was okay. Um, but it was that passion that just kept me going. Um, kind of a, a revelation for me, you know, Sean talked about different re revelations and, and things that kind of spur you on. I remember being on a gig and there's a guy that came, guitar player sat in, wasn't a real nice guy, and, uh, and this is typical of New York, Philly kind of thing, you know, he's handing out charts. And I hear him say, don't give the bass player a chart, he can't read anyway. And I got so ticked off at that, that I thought, you know, that, uh, so they gave me the chart, and I did okay, you know, and again, I'm not schooled, I'm self-taught. So after that point, I decided to actually learn how to read, do everything and anything I could to learn more about playing music and about being a musician. That's the key. You can either be a hobbyist or you can be a musician. I wanted to be a musician, so I realized that I had to learn more. And that passion pushed me through to the point where, as I learned more, I realized how much I didn't know. As I got better, I realized what I needed to work on. Um, an epiphany, go like this. A couple of years ago, I'm on a gig, band, big band gig, Band leader comes in. He says, I, I just got this new chart. It was just published. He's like, we're going to read it down on the gig. So I had to sight read, hit the ground running on bass. That is not an easy chart. Anybody familiar with that? Gordon Goodwin, hit the ground running? I know that chart. He knows. <laughs> he knows. 
But it is, it's very difficult, but it's in the vein of, you know, what I grew up with, which was like R&D. It's very, it's, it's almost tower powerish. But it was, a, it was a great chart. And that, at that point, I realized, okay, you know, I can, I can really continue to do this. So it's these little things that spur you on. So if I were to give you any kind of message today, it's this. You can have your cake and eat it too. You can, you don't have to just play to be a musician. You can do other things in the music industry. These guys are proof of that. There's other things you can do. Um, in my day gig at Casio, um, I'm the director of sales. I run the music dealer and piano dealer channel in the United States. So frankly, it's important for me to play because I have to have that cred when I go in and I talk to somebody. Or if I do education, you know, I, I, I manage the education part of the business. When I go and I do big band stuff, invariably guys that are on the bandstand are local band directors. I'm like, oh, I know you. So when I go talk to them, I have that, you know, it, there's some validity there. There's some credit, you know, that I have with these folks. So there's other things you can do in the industry, because quite frankly, if you put pen to paper and you figured out how much you could make on each gig, okay, um, you'd be a little disappointed what you end up with. Even if you play 100 to 150 gigs a year, there's other things you have to do to supplement your income. But it is feasible and it is possible. Uh, but have that passion. We're all here for the same reason. We're all here because of music. And that's the common thread. Um, Funny with, with Sean, uh, Sean actually taught my kids. So we moved to a specific school district in the outside of the Philadelphia area because of the arts part of the, uh, um, the school district. This one, one school uh, in particular, Sandy Run Middle School, um, was where I first heard of Sean Kennedy. Sean, had, at this point, had already a bunch of CDs out. He was already an author. He was doing all these things. He calls me up one day. He said, hey, my bass player just moved to the Northwest. I need a bass player. Never heard me play. He said, um, you know, uh, I know you're local. Are you interested? I'm like, sure. So, you know, of course, I, I, I buy all the CDs. I'm shedding the material. I go this, we have to get together and all this stuff. And I asked him outside. I said, no, I said, so I'm just curious. I mean, you never heard me play. Why did you, you know, ask me to do this? He said, well, I know your kids. And they're really talented. I figured you must be pretty talented, too. And that's, that's a true story. And uh, from that comes the relationship. So the other thing that I can impart to you, which is really important, is that coming from the Philadelphia area, if anybody is a, a jazz aficionado, um, you know that Philadelphia has a very, very heavy jazz uh, community. And there are some great, great musicians. There are bass players and, and other folks that are significantly better musicians than I am. And I asked a buddy of mine, and I said, you know, I don't get it. There's all these guys that started naming these names, you know, but I'm getting these gigs. Why am I getting these gigs? And I'll, I'll paraphrase because the word he used wouldn't be nice here, but he said, it's because you're not a jerk. <laughs> and he said, you know, you show up, you're prepared, your gear's always good. He said, he said, I don't know if you know this or not, he said, but you're the only guy uh, that does big band stuff and you think enough to bring an electric bass with you. Because I couldn't imagine playing hit the ground running on an upright. <laughs> but, um, you know, I do that because I take pride in what I do and I try to be fair and I try to be, you know, um, you know good hearted about it because it's a small community and you never want to burn bridges. So those are the kind of things that, that, that I learned and uh, it's an honor to sit here with these folks um, uh, and, and talk about this kind of stuff. But the common thread here is the passion. So stick with your passion. Excellent. Sure. Oh, yeah. Clayton, you want to go next? Well, that's a hard act to follow. <laughs> But um, in, the, in the spirit of that, um, I remember uh, 
I was touring with Sammy Davis Jr. and we were um, actually touring with Frank Sinatra and, and Dean Martin. And being around, you know, gentlemen like that, you know, you talk about passion, you know, they love what they did. But they also um, really enjoyed what they were doing. Um, it was like a part of their life. So it wasn't just something that you got up and you wanted to be a star or something like that. Like that. You know, a person like Sammy Davis Jr. who had been doing what he was doing since he was uh, three years old, um, that was his life. I mean, that's what he did. It, he, it's almost like uh, uh, someone, uh, you see a kid who loves soccer, goes to sleep with a soccer ball, um, you know, or, or a basketball, that sort of thing. So that's how I was as a kid. You know, I just, uh, you know, bang on tables, you know, um, pots and pans, that sort of thing. So I didn't, I didn't know any better. It was kind of like, um, you know, if you took the soccer ball away, it's like taking the, or took my sticks away, or it's like taking Tiger Woods' golf clubs away, that, that sort of thing. So I, I tell all my students when I teach that um, you better love it. Just love it. If you don't love it, then it's going to be really difficult to get good because you're going to be comparing yourself to other people. You're going to try to, you know, top somebody else when really you could just be taking it all in. So, um, and I get really emotional about this because I think of <laughs> So I'm going to pass it over to Gordon until I get myself together here. Gordon, pick it up. Well, it's interesting you had that reaction too, you know, and, and since we've been talking about passion. And so I find myself in my life trying to find, to walk that line between expressing uh, things that I believe in in a, in a way that I feel is responsible to that while allowing other people their own opinions about it. So, mom and dad tell you, music, you shouldn't do music, you know. They say that to you in the best intentions, right? Yeah. That's, the, that's their understanding, you know. And so you have to find, which is hard when you're a kid, to find out who, who, who am I? What do I really believe in? When I have people that I respect and love telling me, dude. And I can't tell you how many times people said to me, you know, don't ever do big bands. What are you kidding me? Who would do that? Think about it for a minute. <clears throat> so we've had, we're about to start recording our eighth record. Show of hands, how many people, just in terms of production costs for a big man record, how many think it's between ten and $20,000 to record a big man? <laughs> 20 to 40. 40 to 60. You're still a little bit low. <laughs> and I'm not spending money on cocaine and limos and stuff, right? There's like, just by the time you, I mean, sometimes if you, if you get like I got Michael Brecker, he was $5,000. Chick Corea was five grand. So sometimes those line items tend to add up, you know? But um, you pay union fees and you go to Capitol Records and it's 1500 bucks a day and you want to make it right. Before you know it, you get the record done and you have to market the record if you're putting it out yourself. So you can have spent, I mean, on one, a couple of these records, we spent almost $100,000 and we never, ever make it back. So. If you're putting a business together, who would do that? <laughs> it's crazy. So that leads you to think, okay, there are other reasons to do things besides money, which sounds like complete and utter nonsense to some people in our culture, right? But the truth is, is that for me, and I was, I was well along in my career when I finally decided maybe I should plant my flag and say, this is the music that I love. This is music I believe in. Because I was working in the 90s at... Warner Brothers, and working at Disney, you know, and where I'd work at Disney and I'd write music like they wanted it, 
I go to Warner Brothers and I write my music in the style that they want. And it was great. We were winning Emmy Awards and making good money and it won what they wanted. And at some point in your life you go out, is this, is this what I'm supposed to do? Just to be a chameleon, it's an honorable living, to be, to be sure. So I decided, all right, and this is at a point I had, you know, young kids, responsibilities, and so I, and I was working long hours working on the animation music. And I'd come home at 10 at night and I'd sit down and write a big man chart. Wasn't sure why, you know, but I finally had enough material and I got the guys together and we recorded it and eventually got a record deal. And now it's, um, you know, I'm spending, all the money on it, you know? But it's led to a balance in my life, you know? Because it's, it's like led to me, it, it's, it's enabled me to, like in Hollywood, if I'm asked to work on a movie of music that I don't agree with, I can endure it. Because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't touch me, you know? Because I, I, this is like a job, I can take the resources from this job, make another big band record, you know? And then I get calls from people like, uh, we got a, uh, an email from a woman up in Oakland couple years ago, and she says, she says, I, I wanted to uh, just thank you for your music and for your band, and I wanted to tell you about my son, Jesse, who we recently lost to cancer, but before he died, he was, uh, uh, he, he was a kid that got cancer pretty early, you know, like six or something, and he would fight, battle it back, and then, you know, he'd go into remission, and it would come back again, and one of those lives. So he starts playing saxophone in seventh grade, and then at some point discovers the big fat man. And it, beca it became a, a, kind of an obsession with him where he would just listen to it all day. I mean, I have his earbuds on, you know, and, and go to sleep to it and wake up to it. And, and so he became so into it, inspired by music and jazz. And, and our band was, a, I guess, a catalyst for him. And then his cancer comes back and he's maybe 15 or 16. I met him once too, which I didn't know he was sick at the time. but. Um, and so he's going to get his chemo. And you know, when you get in chemotherapy, I, my understanding is, it's cumulatively harder each time. You don't get used to it. Your body just gets its ass kicked more and more as you do it. So he's scared to get his chemo. So he, he, his mom, he used to take and put his headphones on and listen to the big fat band and get strength. And he'd go, okay, I'm ready, let's go. What's better than that? If you do something with your life where the music touches somebody on that level, is a Grammy Award better than that? How much money is worth? Is that worth? You know, so, so I keep having experiences like that, which is the at, the, at the end of the day, for me, the most meaningful thing to my decision to say, all right, I'm going to put my time and my treasure behind the music that I really believe in. That was back in 1999, you know, that, you know, that I did that. Well, I waited a long time. A lot of my life before I had the courage to say, yeah, screw it, I like this music. This is what I believe in. And, and uh, I can remember for the first time I heard Count Basie's band when I was in eighth grade. And I go, oh my God, this is incredible. And the rest of my peers are like, what? What, what are you talking about? Right? And then I'm, I'm going through high school like many of us band geeks did with a kind of a dirty little secret. We like jazz and it's really great, you know, and, but you don't really want to come out with it because you want to try to fit in with your peer group, and, you know. So, so that becomes the big challenge of coming into, into this culture with a passion for something that has no economic value or, or, or sometimes any, any um, cultural value. I mean, I, I had a, got into a stupid argument on Facebook about football. And I saw, I, 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 it, was a, it was about uh, Bo Jackson 
And he talked about how he was glad he only played for four years of pro, of pro ball because he realized how damaging that sport is in, in terms of you know, head injuries, concussions, and all that stuff. So I kind of said, well, that's interesting that he would come out and say that, you know. And, and I posted a statistic about how many high school athletes are injured, you know, and have lifelong trauma to the head injury. So all the people in this country that are rabid fans of the NFL, where football's a religion, and maybe there are people in this room that are in that category. I, I used to like to watch it. Until I realized if I'm watching this, that means I'm okay with the high school kid who gets killed, or who gets brain damage, or, you know, gets Alzheimer's 20 years early because of playing that sport. So I, anyway, I'm not, I'm not here to debate that, but I'm posting it and people are commenting. And this one guy, he said, he goes, well, at least it's better than music. Music is completely self-centered. <laughs> what does music do for anyone? And, I, and of course, he got hammered on, on, the, on the thread, you know, by people. And I said, you know, unless he's going for comedy, he really believes this. And so we live in a culture, and I think that there's a degree of truth to that. We live in a culture that doesn't give a lot of thought value to intellectual property and to music. I may be preaching to the choir here, you know, because <laughs> those of us that, you know, that see what, you know, that what an understanding of the arts can do for the human condition, you know. But that's kind of what I see as, as our, maybe our, our, uh, our best thing that we can do. If we can, if we can, by finding ourselves, help somebody like Jesse, you know, impact somebody's life like, like we were able to do for Jesse, I think that is, is the real, real reward in finding out who you are and sticking to that. Yeah, Gordon, um, in, in keeping with that, I remember when I was in high school, and I was a pretty good middle school and high school gymnast, and... Um, can you still do that? I can still do it for you look like you a might front roll. <laughs> but I, I pulled my back out when I was trying to show my son the other day, so I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. But I remember the... Um, the gym teacher, when I, when I got to be, I knew I wanted to go to college, and so I had to get my mallets together, because I was gonna go to Cal State Northridge, I wanted to audition for their, their program and all that stuff. So, you know, so I, I told my coach, I said, look, I'm not gonna do it my senior year. And so he says, uh, well, you know, what's the problem? What are, you, what are you gonna do? I said, well, I wanna focus on the music. He goes, music, what are you gonna do with that? And so I thought to myself, um, I said, well, what the hell am I going to do with gymnastics? I don't know anyone that makes money at gymnastics, you know. So, 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 you know, people's perspective about the arts is usually skewed by their own limitations. So they see themselves not being able to do it, so they see you not being able to do it. Um, you know, I, not to drop names here, but I remember because of my working with Sammy Davis Jr., I met Miles Davis. So... I remember we were doing, the first show I'd ever done with Sammy was in Minnesota at uh, the Minnesota Fairgrounds, and um, the stage was right next to um, pig races. You know, little piglets come out. So I'm going, okay, this is interesting. And then the next gig I did was all the way down in Australia. Then the next gig I did, um, the third gig I did was in New York City. Now, as a kid, I always wanted to go to New York City. I mean, that was, you know, I lived in Los Angeles all my life. I didn't know what snow was. I didn't, you know, winter, what is winter? So I remember going there for the first time and we're playing at the Gershwin Theater for two weeks and we have um, one night off on Monday night. And so the show was with uh, uh, Bill Cosby and Sammy Davis Jr. And it was a really, really great show. And I was very, very green. Um, you know, talking about sight reading, I mean, uh, with Sammy, he had such a huge book 
that all you can do was rehearse his hit records and then everything else you had to sight read. So being the new boy in the band, and we always had um, big band and string, so it was you know quite a kind of like Frank Sinatra style, you know that. So um, I just remember uh, getting to New York City for the first time, being so excited. And the reason I was there is because I was a musician. The reason I was there is because I loved what I was doing, and now I was amongst all these people that you know had been doing it for years, and and many of them you know unheard of, but they made a living at doing it. But I remember the curtain opening up one night on the second week, and uh, I see in a sea of, of white faces this one black guy, and I'm going, that looks like Miles Davis, you know? And, uh, and so now I'm totally thrown by this, because I'm supposed to be sight-reading music, and I'm worried about that being Miles Davis. So at the end of the show, I was totally despondent. I was like, oh, you must have sounded like crap, because you know I felt like I was so distracted. Well, the, the first week I had met my, one of my heroes was uh, his, uh, Art Blakey, and he was in the wings, and when I came off, you know, he gave me a big compliment, gave me a hug, and you know, said, come over here, you little African, I heard you up there. <laughs> and, so, and so I was like, you know, so excited, I said, wow, you know, I'm here because, now I didn't plan this, I didn't, you know, say as a kid, I'm going to go to New York City and meet Art Blakey, you know, I didn't go, you know, and then... Subsequently, I ended up meeting a lot of other people because he says, hey, come to my jam session tomorrow night. And at the jam session, I met Roy Haynes, Jack DeJohnette, Marvin Smitty Smith, all these, you know, great guys. So, you know, and I'm like, you know, 22 years old, and I'm just like, wow, it's, you know, green. But that night when the curtain opened and Miles Davis was there, Miles came off the stage. I, I came off the stage. The theater was completely empty, and I was, I was thinking that he was going to come back and say hello, like, you know, not to me, but to Sammy and, and Bill Cosby, like our Blakey did. But I didn't see him, so I peeked out of the curtain, and he was still sitting there, and everybody was gone. Um, with the exception of his wife at the time, Cecily Tyson, who was talking to someone on the side. But he saw me, and he got up, and he made his way down the aisle, you know, said, hey, drummer, come here, come here. And so I get up and go, I can't believe this is Miles Davis. So again, now I'm in a situation where I'm meeting one, another one of my heroes, and it's just because I play drums. It's just because I love music. It's just because, not because I said I want to make a lot of money, not because I said, you know, I want to be the greatest. It's just because I loved it. So in your work, when you put forth the effort, when you listen, when you do your, they call it, uh, like when you do, when you listen to one that's stealing, when you listen to a lot of research, you know, have you ever heard that? Yeah. I, I'm sure Gordon in writing, he knows that because he's listened to all these. You've heard him. He has to write for Disney. He has to write for this. And he listens to jazz. So you, he brings all those things together to do what he does. Um, you can't do that without listening. So it's, you have to learn the languages. And all these things that we do is really, in music, it's a language. If you're playing, you know, Baroque, there's a certain thing that they did there. If you're playing straight ahead jazz, 40s. There's a certain language to it. There's a certain language to playing funk, you know. So, so if you're going to do these things, you have to really learn. So when I met Miles that night, I came off the, sta the, the stage, and the first thing he said to me, uh, and I hope there's no children in the room, um, how, how the hell you do that on the cymbals? That's some bad I have no idea what he's talking about, right? <laughs> so he said, man, you are bad. Any kids in here? So he says, you know, now I'm standing with him, you know, in the aisle and nobody's around, you know, it's just the two of us. And he says, yeah, you look bad. And I'm, I'm just smiling here, I'm not saying anything. And then he says, he says, uh, you like Tony? 
And of course, he's talking about Tony Williams, and that was a big hero of mine. And I said, oh, yeah, I love Tony. Oh, yeah, Tony's a bad And so he said, uh, then he starts, he says one thing to me. And I never forget it. He says, um, you know, I like the way you set up the band. And I, I said, thank you, Miles, you know. And he says, uh, you know, sometimes you set it up and you don't play. Now, think about that. Here's a guy who has, um, you know, played with everybody, brought up a culture of musicians and, 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 and created, you know, a certain sound in, in, in the genre. And he's given me a little advice because when people said Miles spoke in codes, um, which he did, um, but to me that was, I don't know, it meant so much to have a guy like that just pass on just a little information. If you're, if you're paying attention, you'll get it. So I'll carry that with me for the rest of my life, but I'll also pass it on to you. That's why I'm here today. So you gotta have the passion. I mean, that's the, you know. Yeah, just to dovetail on what both of you just said, I wrote myself some quick notes, and um, I think it was uh, 2009, my second NAMM show, I had just had a book released, that's why I came out with Carl Fisher, and uh, Clayton's great book is also with Carl Fisher, and um, they had these uh, big concerts in the bottom of the Hilton here, I think uh, maybe Bernard Purdy and some other folks were jamming down there, and uh, I saw you from across the room, I'd never met you before that, and uh, I walked up to him and I said, Clayton, I'm a big fan of yours. And I introduced myself. I said, I'm Sean Kennedy. He goes, I know who you are. I'm like, what? Like, I, I, I don't even know what I said to you. You probably don't even remember. Um, but I, it was probably from the publishing thing. But to have one of these heroes of mine say, yeah, I know who you are. Uh, it was a life-changing moment, kind of like Miles talking to you. And the only reason that happened is because I stuck with it. Because a lot of my students say, I'll mention something. I'll say, oh, I had a gig up in New York at such and such place. They're like, well, how, do you, how did you get that gig? I'm like, and I, there's no answer to that. I'm like, it started when I was 13, you know? I kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And um, kind of pushing and fighting the culture that Gordon was talking about because uh, over dinner last night, I was talking to some friends and uh, someone came up to one of the friends and said, what do you do for a living? And they said, I'm a musician. And this has happened to probably everyone on the stage, and in here they say, no, what do you really do? <laughs> you know, I'm like, no, we're musicians, uh, so we have to fight that culture and, and live with our passion. And um, there was one other thing I was gonna talk about. Oh yeah, um, something that one of those two guys said just reminded me of this. Um, I had a chance a number of years to go to record a uh, couple songs with the great Bob Mincer, a tenor sax player. And uh, I had all these aspirations in my mind. Uh, there was a drum solo in one of the tunes. And I had worked out this thing. I was, it was going to be this great improvised solo. Because uh, <laughs> Mincer's there, you know, the legendary Bob Mincer. And it, it, time was tight, and I knew we weren't going to have many takes on it. And Bob wasn't going to need any takes. Because as soon as he played, I knew it was going to be good. So we get the chart up, and uh, the first session is counted off. It's a really fast modal thing, kind of in the uh, style of like impressions or something. So I just swing, 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 swing. Okay, I'm like, all right, my, my improvised drum solo is coming up. Uh, <laughs> you know, these licks that I had worked out to impress Bob Mincer, stupidly. Um, so I'm like, oh, okay. And I start playing, and we're playing, 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 and I drop one of my sticks. And I was in a booth by myself, though. Nobody knew I dropped my stick except me. So I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. I picked up another stick and whatever. I didn't tell anyone because I was like, this could be the only chance we get. And Bob might go, you dropped your stick. I, I had no idea what would happen if I told him. So we listened to playback and he goes, yeah, let's just do one more for safety. I'm like, okay, fine. So we do one more and I don't drop my stick. 
okay? And I played my improvised lick, all right? So we sit in the booth with Bob and we're listening and we're like, well, Bob, which one do you like? He goes, the first one. And I'm like, really? And I didn't say anything, it was just inside. I'm like, really, Bob, what about the second one? I thought it sounded great. And he's like, no, man, the first one, your solo was awesome. There was this space. <laughs> and I just look at him and I'm like, yeah. Space. So when I listen to it, I can hear my stick drop, and it's this funny thing. Like I couldn't have prepared what I prepared for. Would have, he didn't like what I prepared. The improvisation and just the soldiering through that. That's what he dug the space. And I've always thought thought about that. Now recording sessions and gigs. It's like, you know, uh, sometimes you can over prepare. Uh, so just kind of roll with it and see what happens, and it could actually turn out better. Uh, let's see. All right, we have a few minutes. Does anyone have anything I want to add, or do you want to open the floor to some questions? Okay. Questions for any of the esteemed panel? Yes, sir. I have a question for Mark. Since you have a quote-unquote day job, which is a you know, pretty high-pressure job, I'm curious to how you balance the, the time commitments that you have to keep your passion in music and your chops up, as well as working full-time and doing everything else that you're doing. Well, I, I, I do get up pretty early, so I will practice. I try to practice at least an hour a day, something, anything. Um, either on electric or upright, I'd find the time. You know, that, that's, you know, I, I talk to guys all the time and, and it's a similar question. They say, you know, I don't know how you do it. And, and they say, oh, I can never find the time. And I say, well, that's because you don't carve out the time. You have to carve out the time. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's one of those things where I, I love it. I love to play music. I can't imagine my life without it. It's basically who I am. And um, I'm not as talented as these guys in, in various areas where I could make it my living, and I realize that. But it's still my passion, it's still my love. And I hate sucking on the bandstand. So, <laughs> I try to practice anytime I can. Any other questions out there? Yes, in the back. It's actually to the panel. Um, while you guys are accomplished um, and wonderful personalities individually, was there ever a point for any of you where it was like, you know what, I just have to suspend this and take a different, take, take a different route? Yeah, today. <laughs> um, no, you know, like I say, you know, for me, um, coming back to having the passion for it, uh, you know, listen, you gotta, you know, throw as many darts as you can up on the board and, you know, and see, you know, what sticks. Um, uh, you know, I happen to teach at UCLA, I mean, I teach privately, and, you know, I do some sessions. And, in fact, I had one of the fun sessions I had was a couple years ago with Gordon. I was while well working with the Count Basie Orchestra, and I never thought I would, listen, I never thought I'd work with the Count Basie Orchestra, first of all. And, you know, to get the call to, you know, just ask if I wanted to do it, it, it you know, it was, it was great. So we, we, we did a, a, a session at Capitol. Gordon did several charts. I think I almost played on one of them. Cause, cause uh, yeah. <laughs> you were the victim of some political maneuvering by the producer. But we had some great, I, I had great fun. Um, and, you know, when you're amongst, you know, other people and you, that, that are doing what you do, and you get inspired, even when you, you're not, not feeling like, oh, you know, I wish, wish I could be doing this, or one thing I try not to do with myself is say I should be doing something. Well, if you should, you probably would be. 
um, and, and as well as shitting on other people. Well, that guy shouldn't be there. I should be there. Well, that, that's not where you're not there, so you're not there. So maybe something in the future will put you in the place you want to be. But, you know, wasting your energy on, like, what you should be doing or what somebody else should be doing. You know, philosophically, for me, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. Um, it just seems to be a waste of energy. So if I felt like, you know, I should be doing something, that would make me feel like, you know, I need to do something else. So um, I've, I've never really been there, but I've definitely just said, hey, let me do this while this is not going on. So, you know, just you got to put the darts up there as many as you can. Something might stick that you really love. Other things will be you just trying to make some money and, you know. So, you know, for me, that, that, that's the way I've approached it. Gordon Goodwin short. So years ago, I'm, I'm, I'm reading this, and I and oh, actually, Bob, you know this. I, I was. What's what's the the Bach? What's that chart? The Bach uh, that you do that's based off the inventions. Two part invention in D minor. Okay, so anyway, I'm looking at the chart, and I'm I'm like moving papers, and I'm filling in, and I'm playing, and you can't tell John Ball the story, the drummer. Okay, I'm playing, and there's one section that's open for solos. And I forget whether it goes from three to four or four to three. I forget. But I'm moving so fast. He's playing in, in three, and I'm playing in four. And, it, and on the repeat, I catch it and go, oh, crap. And I'm playing, and I'm like, fine. And he says to me, man, that was awesome. I never heard anybody approach it that way. <laughs> Some of your best things are your mistakes. Yes. And I was like, it's true. thanks, man. You know? But you know the the thing is sometimes we're our own worst enemy. You know we 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 you know doubt ourselves and and that was that was a, a funny defining moment and I and I remember that vividly because he was so like wow how, where'd you come up with that but uh, but yeah so you know there are times when you 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 have self doubt but that's what really spurs you on too so I think it kind of comes down to you you know if you're going to make your decisions out of Fear or love. It's yes, really right. one of those one of those two choices, yes, you know. And and so um, we were we were earlier talking about uh, a state of uh, state of view, state of mind for how you carry yourself. And I and I as somebody was saying that I was thinking there was somebody sitting in the back of the room who had to leave. And uh, we'll wrap this up here. And and but she works for one of the biggest companies at this show, and she worked in uh, in. Uh, uh, human relations in that company, and we were talking about the kind of people that they hire for that company, you know, and, and in terms of what it, the qualifications and that, and she goes, well, you know, we kind of have one overriding rule, which is no, you know, it doesn't matter who you you know, what your skill set is or whatever, if you're, it always screws everything up, you know, and I thought that was a fascinating, you know, distillation of that for a really big company whose name you would know, and so I ended up, uh, Thinking about that in, in you know terms of, of my own life and realizing that you have to maintain your humility and your in your gratitude. We get to be in music on our worst day when we're playing the worst gig we and that's music we hate, it still doesn't suck. It's awesome, you know. And if you can kind of carry that with you, you know, that, that should see you through. Amen. Well, thanks guys for sitting in on the panel. Thank you. And uh, thank you for attending. Have a great night show. If you enjoyed this session, please check out my podcast called Backstage at the Enharmonic.